You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and I'm interviewing State Representative Andrew Fink of the 58th District. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Lauren. Thanks for having me on. There was a recent assassination attempt on Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The person who wanted to assassinate Kavanaugh was upset about the leaked draft of an opinion by the Supreme Court signaling that it is positioned to overturn Roe v. Wade. What are your thoughts on this? Well, um, to say that it's, uh, I mean, this is the first time that I'm aware of this happening. Um, at, I mean, I, I, I know Supreme Court history, constitutional history reasonably well. I don't know of this ever happening before. Um, so it's, it's kind of shocking and unprecedented, and I was surprised actually at how quickly and how lightly the media handled it. Uh, I think I heard somebody say, I don't read the New York Times, but I heard it was on page A20 of the New York Times. I can tell you that on the evening that it happened, I checked the uh, biggest news outlets in Michigan, at least biggest print outlets, and it was already off the front page of their website, although it was still on. I also checked the journal and the, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and it was still there. So I, I found it surprising that it was not made a bigger deal. Uh, or was not recognized for how big of a deal it is, I guess is what I should say. Because I, I do think that it's really <clears throat> incredible uh, that folks would not take very seriously the idea that a Supreme Court justice being physically threatened um, because of a perceived likely outcome, and it, it probably relating to, I mean, why would it be Justice Kavanaugh? Well, probably because of the what I think was clearly over-the-top opposition to him that uh, was was tied to um, some extremely thin evidence and some of the accusations against him, but were, were probably never really about him, but were instead about, you know, concern over power at the Supreme Court. So uh, the, the, the degree to which this is kind of uh, surprising and, and horrifying um, is, I think, being kind of forgotten because the whole the, the, the whole perception of the Supreme Court, at least on the part of some people, uh, has become so disturbingly kind of policy-based and partisan. At the end of the, end of the day, the Supreme Court is there to decide cases and controversies. That's what our Constitution says. And uh, as Justice Robert Jackson once said, they're not final because they're infallible, but they are infallible because they're final, meaning they're the, the court of last resort. And so on a constitutional question, you're not going to appeal your case beyond the Supreme Court, except to the people if you were going to try for a, an amendment or, or whatever. And so the stakes, I guess, being that high are, are what generated, again, the attention on Justice Kavanaugh. But at the end of the day, a, a constitutional republic like we have, if, if we're going to resolve our cases and controversies through a court, uh, protecting the integrity of that court, the independence of that court, is obviously paramount. And although abortion is, of course, a very serious topic, you and I have talked about it, I think, in the past. I certainly have talked about it on, on this uh, spot before. Uh, it, it's, it's as serious as any topic could be. Um, pro-lifers have been on the losing side of a Supreme Court case for like 50 years now, and to my knowledge have never threatened the life of a, of a Supreme Court justice. Certainly, I don't think any pro-life activist uh, was ever found in the garden of a Supreme Court justice in the middle of the night. Uh, with weapons and burglary tools, so it's it's a bad it's a bad uh, omen for not just politicization of the court, but undermining our constitutional system, 
wherein we expect the court to make independent judgments about what uh, what the parties you know have at stake in in the case that they bring to the court. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying I think it's really bad, uh, really horrifying, and um, should should be I think underscored uh, more heavily than it has been to this point that we can't tolerate uh, judges. Uh, being in- intimidated, uh, threatened, and the, I guess the last thing I'd say about it is that I think it's been kind of pathetic uh, the way the Biden administration has ignored what were already protests, which included some uh, implicit threats to the justices at their homes, and then one's actually kind of realized, and again, the, the president, I think his, well, the administration anyway, has missed an opportunity to demonstrate some kind of uh, uh, kind of above politics moments of just uh, respect for our constitution, respect for our system of government where the three branches kind of both check each other and rely on each other. Uh, and so I've been, I've been pretty frustrated by the whole thing. There have been several pro-abortion groups around the nation who claim that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, They will show their anger via rioting and destroying public property. Do you think this will have any effect on the outcome of the decision? Well, look, I I don't I mean, I don't know uh, how any of the of the nine. I mean, I guess I've met a few of the justices, but I don't know how any of them really make decisions. So. I wouldn't speculate as to whether it's likely to affect the decision, Um. What I would say, I, I introduced a resolution last week or maybe at the tail end of the week before uh, in the Michigan House condemning the attacks on pregnancy resource centers, pregnancy counseling centers are sometimes called Hillsdale, used to be called Alpha and Omega, uh, over in Branch County, my other county, the other county I represent, uh, Beginnings Care for Life. Uh, these are, are places that uh, provide, I mean, they're, again, they're called pregnancy resource centers, provide resources to expecting mothers, uh, newborn babies, new families, even new dads uh, who maybe have gone through a difficult pregnancy. Uh, they're, under, they're under stress because they didn't expect a pregnancy or uh, are poverty-stricken and having to have difficulty kind of getting through the, the pregnancy. Or maybe they don't have the same family support network, what have you. And so this is that although they're, they're related to the pro-life kind of uh, cause overall, they're not actually, uh, they're not doing policy work. They're not, they're not, uh, necessarily working towards, uh, you know, and like right to life is they're just there to support moms and babies. And these places are being attacked, vandalized in some cases and, and outright, uh, I mean, firebombed in several others around the, the country. And actually I heard, can't remember where, but I was told that one was vandalized in Michigan, uh, last week too. Uh, the, the example that actually hit closest to home for me is not terribly close to home, but it's in Buffalo, New York, uh, because it's the pregnancy resource center that parishioners that my brother, my brother's a pastor over in suburban New York, and the pregnancy resource center that his parishioners are connected to uh, was firebombed a couple of weeks ago. So seeing these things and seeing this kind of confrontation, this, um, this violent and, again, intimidation campaign against folks who, yes, disagree about abortion in all likelihood, but are actually just there trying to provide diapers, formula, 
uh, perhaps sort of emotional or psychological care to uh, to women who are going through a difficult pregnancy, and seeing them literally attack, not just kind of in argument, but in physical reality, uh, is another bad omen for the way that I think pro-abortion radicals, uh, I mean, in this case, again, if you're attacking a pregnancy resource center, it suggests that you prefer abortion to birth. And uh, folks who take that view, um, as you say, have promised to be violent. And I guess I think that this is, uh, to a degree, um, a logical out- outcome of, uh, of the way in which violence in our cities in 2020 was, I think, just uh, it, it was ignored because there was a certain amount of virtue signaling on the part of executives in the cities and the states where this was happening, where uh, because they wanted to express some sympathy for, uh, you know, maltreatment of citizens by police, which, you know, I'm, I am both a, uh, uh, I've, I've been both a prosecutor and a defense attorney. I'm the child of a police officer, but one who was always very re- realistic about the fact that when you have a profession as large as policing, there will be police officers who are not good at their jobs and are even sort of affirmatively bad at their jobs. So it's not as though there's never been uh, police misconduct, but the way in which in 2020, some examples of that were taken to mean that public property, even private property, should be destroyed in order to make a point about by policing as a profession that was never accurate, let alone uh, that would justify the destruction of public and private property. Now we have another issue on which uh, folks feel strongly, and they've sort of been shown that there probably won't be severe consequences for destroying uh, uh, public property or, again, even private property where significant looting uh, has happened. And the way I look at this is simple, and I said this in 2020, and I say it right now. Everyone has a First Amendment right to protest. Uh, you can protest this, a uh, court decision. You can protest uh, a piece of legislation. You can protest an executive action or decision. All of that is, I think, uh, basically protected by our First Amendment and by our, our kind of cherished concept of free speech in this country, where criticism of the government is uh, is something that isn't just um, uh, tolerated, but it's sort of thought of in, in the abstract as as kind of a part of American life, of being able to vocally uh, oppose what your government is doing if you think your government's doing something wrong. So there's nothing wrong with that. What there is, where I, where I have a, a, a serious issue, is in destroying property, uh, going far beyond just speech, but but actually either intimidating your opponents in order to discourage their speech, um, perhaps uh, destroying it because you want to, to actually punish uh, somebody for, for what they have said or what they believe, uh, or just kind of uh, taking the, again, the, the legal protection that we have of free speech and actually disturbing the system of uh, kind of civilized and um uh, well, I guess I'd say civic uh, discourse or civic debate and taking that system that, that protects your right to free speech and abusing it by, by making uh, of, you know, some kind of a violent protest instead of simply a, uh, uh, a vocal one. That's, I think, where, where in 2020, again, mayors, governors, what have you, didn't take that situation seriously. And they've now sort of opened the door for a continuation of that anytime uh, 
people who those mayors, those governors don't want to criticize or don't want to be on the wrong side of uh, decide that they're going to take matters into their own hands. So I am uh, pessimistic about it. I think that there likely will be uh, misbehavior in light of a, of a court decision uh, that reverses Roe versus Wade if that indeed happens. And it is a cause for serious concern because it's not just uh, it's it's not going to be just sort of politically tense or or you know emotional for for some people, but um, I, I am concerned that there will be violence. People's uh, lives and livelihoods will be at risk. You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale one hundred one point seven FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and I'm interviewing State Representative Andrew Fink of the fifty eighth district. Moving on, talking about the state representative election coming up in August. How do you think redistricting is going to affect the election? And then maybe explain what the redistricting commission changed. Well, listen, in my own case, I mean, obviously August is, is the primary. Um, and so it, that, that can affect somebody because even an incumbent uh, might be running in a lot of new territory. And there are examples of that around the state uh, on both sides of the aisle. Um, in my case, you know, I, I don't. I, I don't have anything to complain about what the redistricting commission did in my own district. I currently represent Branch County and Hillsdale County, which is just, it's an incredibly, uh, it's an, in the sense that it's two counties that are obviously adjacent, but also nearly exactly the same size in terms of population, uh, very nearly the same size in terms of land. And if Indiana weren't uh, a little bit taller than Ohio, they would be the same size. Uh, in terms of land, and probably exactly the same in population as well. If you just gave me a little bit more territory and branch, it'd be almost exactly the same. Uh, so it's a perfect district, and I'm I'm honored to represent it today, and excited to represent it again uh, in the 102nd legislature. The only change will be the addition of Hudson, which is in Lenawee County, just on the other side of 127. So that increases the complexity of the district a little bit, in that there's you know a third uh, a third county, and so some uh, new wrinkles in in what. The, the folks of what will be the 35th district are experiencing that, that don't exist in the 58th district today, but it's pretty minor. And the city of Hudson is very similar in size to other municipalities in my district, whether it be Jonesville or I think Bronson and Hudson are within like probably 50 people of population. So really a, a sensible addition. If, if you're going to add something to my district and the city, it's going to be the city of Hudson, that's just fine with me. Uh, so as I look at, at my reelection this year, I'm excited about it. I'm obviously expecting to be returned uh, to the legislature to keep fighting for the values of South Central Michigan, you know, the agricultural community that we have, the manufacturing community that we have, the educational community that we have. It's an honor to represent them. I've built great relationships and look forward to continuing to develop them and rely on them as I, again, try to represent the values of my district. Overall, redistricting will have an impact on, on other people much greater than it's had on me. There are one or two examples of, of uh, my peers whose districts have remained as similar, but there are others, including in places where you might think that there'd be no particular reason to change, um, say the Western UP, uh, where the districts have been really jostled. Um, and so uh, I think that uh, it's it's going to... I get, this is where I'd say the redistricting commission really failed. Um, uh, you know, they have these, these little boxes they're supposed to check and there are things like partisan fairness and communities of interest became this big, heavy discussion point. Uh, and uh, our uh, our faculty member at Hillsdale College, my old teacher and, and our former Supreme Court Justice, Steve Markman, uh, 
did a nice job kind of analyzing how uh, the legislature ought to use these new standards. I'm sorry, the, the commission ought to use these new standards because the legislature no longer controls redistricting. Um, so there's a lot to be said about that. But the thing that the redistricting commission, I think, really failed to, to grasp is how important it is to keep uh, existing political subdivisions in place. And the, and the one that they really violated the most is, um, is county lines. Uh, again, in my district, it really wasn't that big of a deal. Lenaway County is a little bit too big to be completely intact, and they did leave Hillsdale and Branch intact. So I appreciate that. But there are other places where, say, a representative in northern Michigan went from having four complete counties to three complete counties and three partial counties. And that means, of course, that those counties have at least one other representative, the, the ones where there's a partial county in a district. Um, they're sharing or they're, they're being shared by at least two representatives. On the Senate side, it's probably even more frequent that counties are divided. And the downside of this, I think, is, uh, is that those counties' voices is really diminished. When you're in rural counties like mine, I think I have, I, I always say the 30, 37th and 38th largest. I just saw a list last week that suggests that Hillsdale County is the 37th largest by population in the state. Branch is the 39th. So these are both in the, in the top half of counties by population in the state. Uh, and yet we know that there are rural communities with very small towns. So that's, that's exacerbated in, uh, in, in other places as well, you know, even, even more drastically where there are four and five counties in a district. When you take these communities that already have difficulties that um, more compact communities don't, concentrating political power in a larger area is difficult. And so, you know, as, as a for instance, we've appropriated money for school resource officers, and I know I've talked with Scott about this on uh, – WRFH in the past, but it's more difficult for Camden Frontier to be equitably treated, fairly treated by a state appropriation for school resource officers when we know that the school is too small to have a full-time officer, for instance. So levels of coordination necessary in rural areas are already make some aspects of political life more difficult. When you then divide the district, or I should say divide the county into multiple legislative districts, and unfortunately, Hillsdale does face this on the state Senate side, where a quarter of the county is in one district and three quarters are in another district. Now, I, I know all the candidates running there. I think that it's important to uh, be connected with Hillsdale County, and so I'm optimistic that regardless of who wins each of those primaries, uh, our county will be important to those um, to those members of the Senate. But you can understand that the natural temptation would be to focus on the on the communities that speak with a clearer voice uh, and rep- and are a larger uh, portion of of your district. So I am concerned that around the state, these counties that have been divided are going to see diminished uh, results. I don't mean in terms of like pet projects or what have you. I mean, that's not really how I think about legislation. But in having their voice heard on, on matters of statewide importance uh, and, and being able to kind of weigh in and get there, again, get be represented by their legislator. I mean, there are times when uh, you know, I hear from three or four township clerks on a, on a bill or three or four township supervisors or both my county clerks or the sheriffs. And it's so important to me to, to know what they say, because I, I can do a better job representing my district if I understand what the what the lay of the land is on a given issue. And if you divide my district, if, say, I had four partial counties instead of two complete counties or two, two plus a little bit, uh, it would be diff- more difficult for those voices to be heard. So that's my biggest concern about redistricting. It's not really the political outcome. I mean, I, I believe that my my chamber will remain in uh, Republican 
hands, which is good. Us having majority is is important to the state, in my opinion. I, I mean, I, I suppose that goes without saying. I, I want to be a majority, and I think the Republicans have the better of the argument. Uh, but I am still concerned that regardless of who the, of who is a majority politically, small communities are going to have their voices diminished by this redistricting process unless their representatives are very conscientious about it, uh, which will be a message that I try to carry you know, across the legislature in the next term. You know, do not forget the, the small towns, the rural counties that have been divided up and really kind of not respected uh, as they should have been by the redistricting process uh, because you know, the, the, it's all, again, it's already harder to concentrate political power of uh, voice for our rural communities if the representatives are not conscientious about it when their districts have been kind of chopped up in funny ways, uh, it's going to be exacerbated. And that's just something I can't tolerate. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's actually all the questions I have for you. Thanks, Lauren. Our guest has been State Representative Andrew Fink of the 58th District. I'm Lauren Scott on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.